operate. We live by faith. We walk being led by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the administrator of the kingdom of God on earth. Somebody shout amen. amen. But what am I holding in my hand? Little water bottle. Okay, now notice, the little water bottle. Okay, uh, uh, Pastor Brian is so kind, he gets me little water bottles because I'm short. Okay, anyway, so, so anyway, so, um, so little water bottle, right? Okay, I want you to see this. I'm picking this for a reason, okay? This is the church, and the church is a what? It, the church is a what? It's a spiritual body. Shout spiritual body. Okay, your job is to pray. You are so gonna not get good on this quiz. Come on, the church is a what? Good, you got a B plus. All right, now listen. All right, church is a spiritual body, but notice this. It also has a corporate structure. Everyone say corporate structure. What does this bottle represent? It represents the what? Corporate structure. In other words, we have a corporate structure. The corporate structure is the means by which we interface with the world around us. Got it? In other words, the way we interface, you pay the bills. I mean, we're paying the bills. There are multiple churches that meet in this facility. That takes organization and administration. That's done by the? Say it out loud. Corporate structure. The church is a spiritual body, but it also has a what? Corporate structure as a corporate structure. We pay the bills. We pull our resources together. It's, it's through this that we take all of the mass anointing that's here and combine it together because in the body of Christ, when we combine our gifts, talents, and abilities and all the rest and the anointing that's on us, the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. In other words, two plus two is equal than a lot more than five or four or whatever two plus two is. I learned a long time ago, there are three kinds of people in this world, those who know how to count and those who don't. Amen. So anyway, that was a joke. If you think about it, it's actually funny. But hear this, all right? The church is a what? It's a spiritual body, right? It's a what? Has a what? And this is the way we interface with the world. We pull our resources. We make sure people are accountable. We can discipline people if we need to. It has a corporate structure. You know, the... Corporate structure is the servant of the spiritual body. But this is what happens. And eventually, the spiritual body becomes the slave of the corporate structure. That's when the pastor becomes a CEO and a performer, not a man of God and a man of prayer. And when this happens, when the corporate structure dominates the spiritual body, see, when it's like this the way it's supposed to be, when this serves this, then the prayer meeting's the most important. But when it becomes this, then the board meeting and the business meeting's the most important. When it's this, it's what is Jesus saying to us? When it's this, how do the people feel about what's going on? When it's like this, it's like, hey, God is speaking, let's do it. We don't know how we're going to make it happen, but we're going to go for it. This says, you know what? We don't have it in the bank account. We can't do this. That's ridiculous. When this happens, the church ceases to be the church. When this happens, it is more concerned about appearance than it is about what's happening. When this happens, people walk in and out the same as they always have, and nobody cares. When this happens, if someone walks out the same, everybody gets to the prayer meeting and starts fasting and praying, saying, God, that can't happen anymore. Are you hearing what I'm saying? The problem is the culture in which we live, the culture in which we live is a culture that makes it do this corporate structure mentality because people are more amazed by gifts and talents. We don't like the gifts of the Spirit of God. We like the natural gifts of humanity better. You know, a, a gift that speaks. Look, I'm Greek. I was born with a personality. 
I mean, I have a dear friend, he's German. His personality was surgically removed, okay? I mean, it's just the way it is. I mean, you know, he looks at you and he says, if I tell you I'm excited, you just have to take my word for it, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm excited right now. I'm actually napping. I mean, I'm actually asleep. I mean, I'm talking to you. Because Greeks are born talking. When we're born in the world, the doctors slap us, not to get us to breathe, but to get us to shut up, amen? I mean, I mean the fact is, is that, okay, I got a personality, but the truth is, the truth is, it's not based on personality, it's supposed to be based on the anointing of God, okay? Uh, I mean, God just shows people that are extroverts because I'm a max extrovert. You know, God shows you, hey, God can use you if you have this kind of a personality. He can also use you if you're a very quiet person. I mean, when I hang out with Pastor Brian, I mean, I'm like, it drives me crazy. I'm like, how could he be so calm, <laughs> right? I mean, my goodness, if I put my blood into him, he may die, <laughs> right? I mean, the fact, <laughs> the fact is, right? I mean, I hang out with guys like him because it makes me look respectable. I mean, the, the bottom line is, um, the, the bottom line is, is like, but God has an anointing on him. You know, it's always the quiet ones you got to watch, <laughs> right? You know, it's always the quiet ones that are the mass murderers. I mean, when you listen to him, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, remember, they always interview and they say, what was that guy who killed the 26 people and buried him in his basement? What was he like? He was such a quiet guy. All right, remember that. I mean, the point is, but if you listen to us talk sometime, he's got radical Holy Ghost ideas. I mean, he is, he, we believe the same thing with different personalities, right? So I say something like, it's Dean's personality. He says something, you're like, he's going to kill us. No, I mean, the fact is, <laughs> that's so bad. Uh, I better move over this way because he may have a gun. But anyway, so the thing is, is that, is that there's, it's there, but the goal here is not entertainment. It's about the Spirit of God and about the transforming power of the Spirit of God. Amen? Now, I'm going to reiterate something else. I'm, trust me, I'm going to get into this. This is Friday night. A lot of us used to get in a lot of trouble Friday night. I, I have, I'm wearing this. This is kind of a funny thing. On, on Valentine's Day, my wife gave me this. I said, what is that? And, and it's a Fitbit. Has anybody, does anybody know what a Fitbit is? Raise your hand if you know what it is. Right? Okay. I had no idea what it was, old guy. But anyway, so um, I had no idea what this was. And she says, it monitors you. And I said, you mean, it, you, I mean it's like an ankle bracelet? I'm, I'm past those days. And so she said, no. She said, no, honey. <laughs> she goes, no. She said, um, what it is is, she goes, it monitors how many calories you're burning. And she goes, the boys and I, I have two sons, Luke and Alex, 23 and 19. We really want to know how many calories you burn when you preach. <laughs> is that like... So funny, that is so weird. But anyway, so, um, sorry, that was a personal revelation there at all. You know, I mean, um, you know, I move around and all the rest. But, you know, the goal here is I want, I want you to understand so we're all on the same page, you know, how this all works. You know, the bottom line is, I mean, I may flail away and do this or somebody may stand here and all the rest and not move. I move my inflections up and down and somebody may speak in a monotone. It doesn't matter. The bottom line is it's about the anointing and the power of God. I grew up in Chicago, from the, on the west side of Chicago. Do you know what? I watched a five-foot police officer. She was uh, a Puerto Rican. A Puerto Rican police officer, Chicago police officer. She stepped out five uh, uh, foot, feet tall tops. I doubt she was 100 pounds. And a big a semi was barreling down Lakeshore Drive on its way to make a delivery near North Avenue. I mean, it's barreling down. And she stepped out like this, and she held up her hand like this. She wasn't even really paying attention to the truck. She held up her hand like this. Did that guy obliterate her? knew what did he do he came to a dead stop that was a very quiet small individual with a lot of authority she stood there because of what she stood for with total peace see we view people as authority people that are loud people that are boisterous people with a forceful personality i got that but that's not where my authority comes from 
My authority comes from something completely different. It comes from what the Spirit of God does in my life. Now listen, I wasn't planning on going into this, but because I shared some of these principles the last time I was here and it was non-recorded, I want to share something else about this so that you kind of get this, okay? Um, this pastor wanted to ask this. I shared it as an aside, but not as a point, but it lends itself to this. Now hear this, okay? I want you to understand a little bit about also the dynamic. Can, can I do this so we're all on the same page? Yeah. All right. Uh, I want you to understand this. Um, we have, and I shared this a little bit last time I was here, uh, with, uh, 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 with the Church of the Cross. Um, the, the, the problem that exists today is we have an issue, and this has got to do with this uh, whole idea about corporate structure and spiritual body. We have a generational issue. Uh, and when I say generational issue, it's not what you think it is. It's got nothing to do with our ages, our physical ages. Um, that's not the problem. It's got to do with our spiritual age. Um, I am a first-generation believer. I was not raised in a Christian house. I got radically saved when my whole family got saved. My parents and I are different generations because they couldn't be my parents unless they were, okay? Uh, so, they're, you know, they're different. They're older than me. My dad since has gone to be with the Lord. He's in heaven now rejoicing. But here's the thing, okay? My parents are a different generation, but what's unique is my parents and I are the same spirit generation because we all got saved at the same time. And it was the direct result of a radical, supernatural Holy Ghost encounter. My mom was sick and dying. We were raised in the Greek Orthodox Church. When you're raised Greek, you go to the Greek Orthodox Church. All right? So I was raised in the Greek Orthodox Church, which is a lot like the Catholic Church, okay? But a lot more conservative. And it's done in Greek. You know, my first language was Greek. I learned to speak English by the, th I think it was third grade, when I learned to speak English. My, my natural native tongue is Greek. And so, anyway, so... So I was raised in that. That's how we were raised. That's our family. You know, we went to church. But, you know, I was a bookie running a numbers operation out of the Sunday school class. I mean, church was not working. Amen? What? So here's the thing, okay? Messed up. Totally messed up. But what ended up happening was, is my mom got sick and she was dying and she had tumors in her body. All over. In those days, they used to do exploratory surgery. They didn't have CAT scans. They didn't have MRIs. A CAT scan was when your Siamese jumped on top of you and licked you. That was a CAT scan. All right. So, so they used to open you up, look inside, close you up, tell you what was going on. I mean, they took x-rays, which you could only do so much. They looked inside you, closed you up, told you what they had to do, went back inside and, and, and operate. I mean, that's what they used to do. And so my mom, they opened her up, closed her up, and said, there's no hope because there's tumors everywhere. And eventually it's going to get to your brain. You're going to die. They sent her home to die. And in those days, when they did that, you were dead. Well, you know, we didn't believe in any of this stuff. I mean, we didn't understand God. We didn't any of this stuff. But there's a group of Greek Orthodox charismaniacs in the church. Tongue-talking, miracle-believing Greek Orthodox people. Radically born again. And they said to my, uh, my mom, they said, Elaine, which is her English name. They said, Elaine, they said, you need to go to Bradenton, Florida. So they took her to Bradenton, Florida uh, to a, a retreat center called Christian Retreat. They need marketing help. But anyway, um, it's called Christian Retreat, okay? And so the, she went there, and it's run by spirit-filled, tongue-talking, miracle-believing Mennonite people. Now, I'm still not sure what a Mennonite is. I know they're somehow connected to the Quakers, and all I know is every time I eat oatmeal and I look at the guy in the Quaker Oats box, I just get this, like, wonderful feeling of just thinking about him lifting his hands and praying in tongues. I don't know why, but it delights me. But, but there's a bunch of spirit-filled, tongue-talking, miracle-believing people um, down there in Brandon, Florida, who are Mennonites. And so my mom went there, came back a week later, saved, speaking in tongues, and completely healed. Somebody shout amen. Yeah. Well, I, I am born again to this day because of that miracle, all right? All right, I, I'm born again right now because of that miracle, because my whole family got saved as a result of that miracle. So my whole frame of reference is encounter with God. Meaning, 
I mean, I can't even conceive that you would ever witness to somebody and never tell them about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Why would you ever do that? Because, I mean, how could you tell people you need to be born again and to, be, to make it to the finish line of this race that you're starting with Jesus, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. You have to count the cost. How could you tell anybody that without offering them the power to pull it off? That makes no sense. If you're addicted to something, why would I lead you to Christ and then say, now go see counselors for the rest of your life? I did not drop... Uh, I get really passionate about this. Please forgive me. I did not drop out of medical school to do all the same things I would have done if I was in medical school. Jesus called me to do something far greater than that. So we pray for people. People say, well, I believe God uses medicine to heal me. Well, medicine wouldn't work unless God allowed it to work. I just think going to Jesus directly is cheaper, <laughs> right? I mean... So the bottom line is, you know, you need to just let, I mean, God does, God does miraculous things. Can somebody shout amen? Right? So my whole frame of reference is radical supernatural encounter. That's my whole frame of reference. It's encounter. All right. In other words, my whole thing, it's prayer. It's getting into prayer. It's having a prayer life. It's praying in tongues. It's about encountering God. But what happens is when that first generation of those who first come to know Christ, first generation guy like me, when they first come to Christ, their whole frame of reference is encounter. But then the next generation comes along, and the problem is we tend to pass down to the next generation not the frame of reference of encounter, but a frame of reference of lifestyle. Meaning, what do we tell our kids? We look at our kids and say, now honey, you don't act like that because you're a Christian and Christians don't act like that. So their whole frame of reference is they're thinking, well, it's about what we do. So they're thinking lifestyle. They're thinking it's all about lifestyle. You go to church on Sundays, maybe you go on Wednesdays. This is kind of what we do. You know, because that's what Christians do. You don't do this, you don't do that, because that's what Christians do. And they have enough of God and stuff. And here's the dilemma. The dilemma is they're raised in blessings because the first generation that encounters God, they have blessings, amazing blessings. Because you can't help but seek the Lord and not have blessings. Are you hearing me? You know, you have great blessings. And they are born into those blessings, so they expect them. They just have an expectation they're going to be there. They didn't earn them. They didn't go after them. They just have them. And it doesn't mean that they're necessarily unappreciative, but they didn't work for it. And they just walked into those blessings. Does that make sense? So their frame of reference is all about lifestyle. Well, when the next generation comes along, the grandkids, when they come along, their frame of reference is something completely different. See, the first generation, their frame of reference is about encounter and power and prayer. The second generation, it's lifestyle and live in the Christian lifestyle. When the third generation comes along, they completely rebel because they're trying to be forced into a lifestyle for which they have no internal conviction because they're not actually saved. And now you're telling them you got to act like this and they're like, why would I have to act like that? And they completely rebel because they can't pull it off because you can't make an unsaved person behave in a Christian manner when they're radically unsaved. Are you hearing me? Look at it this way, okay? Three generations biblically so you understand this. You got Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, right? So Abraham, you can hardly get through a chapter of Genesis reading about Abraham where he's not digging wells and building altars. You can't, wh why? Because he, the first generation encounter, right? I mean, amazing person. I can't wait to talk to him in heaven. I mean, Abraham has this amazing encounter with God. Well, he has this radical encounter. So he's all about digging wells and building altars. The well represents the spirit life, the life of the spirit, that's what we're going to be talking about over this weekend. You know, the life of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, you know, digging that, to get down to the water. That's that work of prayer and all the rest. That's the Spirit life. The, the, the altar represents the sacrifice 
The life of worship and sacrifice where we're worshiping God and laying things aside in our lives and sacrifice. He's building altars and digging wells. Well, then Isaac comes along. Second generation, right? So, no, let me back up and say this. Um, this is, gets difficult. Uh, Abraham, that generation, that first generation that it's all about encounter, that generation that, that is building altars, digging wells, you know, he had, he, had, he had convictions. Everyone say convictions. Now, for those of us who have been around a long time, or depending on how you're raised, does anybody remember the old days of Pentecost? You know, the, the, any old timers in this room? Remember, everything used to be a sin. Movies, sin. <laughs> Bowling, sin. Pool, sin. It was sin. Now, you know what's so bad about that? The, what was bad is that generation was an amazing generation. They encountered God, and God poured out his spirit on them, and they did amazing things. The problem is, is that they used the wrong word. They shouldn't have called it sin. Because there were things that they did, and there are other things that they did not do. And it wasn't that it was a sin. The problem was, what they were trying to communicate was, they didn't want to get involved with worldly things because they loved the presence of God that was with them. They love that amazing supernatural presence and they didn't want to grieve it away. There are things I don't want to do. Listen, I was just at a place uh, preaching the gospel. And I mean, my goodness, we saw people that were healed. I mean, fragile diabetics, cripples, and blind people. All right, all got healed at one altar call. I'm like, heal! I mean, that's kind of my prayer for healing. I, I pray, heal in the name of Jesus. And when I, for 30 years shouting that word, heal, two things have happened. Number one, really in a weird way, every dog in the area sits down. And number two... <laughs> Just thought that was kind of funny. Maybe I was the only one. But anyway, so, but, and number two, um, you know, people start getting healed. Well, you know, have you ever seen dozens of people that are crippled, blind, deaf? I mean, we pray for people that are not, I mean, I'm not praying for somebody who's like, I have a back pain. I mean, that's easy. You know, you feel better? I think so. Great, God, pray you're healed. You know, we're praying for people that are crippled. I mean, people, I mean, in front of people, we've just said to them, your gods have never answered your prayers. You know, when you're in an area that's Islamic, you know, you look at them and say, your gods have never answered your prayers. But I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. He's going to hear my prayer, heal your sick, raise your dead, and cast out your devils to prove to you your gods are false and he's the only way. That's our altar call all over the world. You know, I mean, you know, you have to have an edge to do that, and I'm nuts. I was dropped out of my head a lot when I was young. Hear this, okay? But the thing is, is that we say those things and God answers the prayer. That's why we, you know, we've helped in 362 church plans. That's why, you know, God is doing so many. I mean, I got testimonies to tell you about Islamic people. I mean, I just couldn't even stop. You know, I mean, the, the bottom line is God does that stuff. You have to have, have a conviction. It's about encounter. It's about prayer. Are you getting this? But here's the thing, okay? Here's the thing. You can't say that unless you've had encounter with God. Are you hearing me? There's a problem when you get to Isaac. Because, see, I, I don't want to do certain things because I don't want to ruin the anointing in my life. You know, I don't go to the beach unless my wife is with me. You know, because of my past, because of the things that I was involved with. My goal out of high school was to be a male prostitute. I was selling my body to do things I never want to remember for the rest of my days. Now, did Jesus deliver me? Yes. Did he change me? Yeah. You know what? I don't struggle with pornography. I don't struggle with that stuff. These, those are not things in my life. But do I test that? No way. I've worked, I'm in my 50s. I've worked for many years trying to disciple my eyes and disciple everything else. Could I handle it if I went to the beach? Maybe, but I'm not going to go and find out. 
You know what I'm saying? There are certain things I don't want to do. Now, you may look at me and go, well, that's stupid. I don't watch certain things. I don't like watching actually TV at all. I mean, I, I, do I watch sports? Sure. Anything outside of that? No. <laughs> you know, I really don't get into stuff. I mean, I'm just, I mean, look, I spend a lot of time praying. I pray in tongues a lot. I'm very social. I get to know people. The last time I was here, you know, some people from the hotel, you may remember, I brought people from the hotel with me. They got saved. They were at this altar. Right? You know, I want to tell you something. I've already made five friends that have only been there about a day. <laughs> right? Uh, uh, there. And I'm working on people at the hotel right now. I'm a social guy. I want to get to know people. Look, I, I get to know enough about pop culture so I can, like, maybe relate to people or share something and all the rest. But the bottom line is, I don't want to do certain things because I don't want to ruin the presence of God that's inside of me. That generation did that. And instead of saying and calling it sin, what they should have said is, we have convictions. The word they should have used is convictions. That first generation, that Abrahamic generation, that encounters God, first saved, never, you know, been saved, first saved, they have, their, their frame of reference is encounter, and they have convictions. Everyone shout convictions. 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 Well, when Isaac comes along, right, his frame of reference is lifestyle. He's the one, he's the one that creates this dilemma, because it's the Isaac generation that takes the church from this and starts working it like this where the corporate structure begins to dominate the spiritual body. Because, see, he's not thinking about it. He's got enough of God that he's inoculated against things. So he believes because he's used to this. So he's like, well, we got to have church this way because this is what mom and dad did, so we have to have it this way. Are you hearing me? Is this making sense? Okay, now follow this. So what happens is Isaac comes along, and whereas the first generation is encounter and they have convictions, the second generation comes along, and to them... Whereas the first generation has convictions, the second generation just views it as tradition. Praying in tongues, doing things certain ways. It's just tradition, man. You don't got to break out of tradition. You know, tongues is not tradition. The Holy Spirit is not tradition. Having a prayer meeting is not tradition. If you don't have a prayer life, you're not going to amount to much. And the church will be nothing. Without a prayer life, there is no help and there is no hope. Now listen, okay? The, the second generation comes along. And that's why you see second generation churches are about tradition. They want things certain ways. Don't change the way it looks. Don't dirty things in the church. Don't like blah, blah, blah. It's, that's tradition. I mean, that's tradition speaking. It's like, hey, we built this and we want it clean. Well, you know, if, if there are no oxen, the manger's clean, but there's not no increase either. Do you understand? They're more concerned about the way things look and the way things are done than they are about what's actually happening. We had a great service. It ended on time. It was great. Nobody got saved. Yeah, it was great, though. You know, I mean, hey, somebody started acting up and all the rest. Well, that's what happens when you have a demon-possessed person. That growling and male voice coming out of that lady. I mean, that was probably not her. Are you hearing me? You know, why do you think she was growling at the crucifix, okay? <laughs> that lady was wearing, you know, I mean. The fact is, is that, do you understand? They're like, well, that was not appropriate. Do it somewhere else. You know, I went into one church, a large, huge church, largest church of the state I was at. They handed me a piece of paper. I'm like, what's this? And they said, those are the list of the words you can't use in your sermon. This was 30 minutes before I got up to preach. I looked at the pastor. The pastor was there. I looked at the pastor. I said, hey, listen, here's the piece of paper. Hey, bless you, man. I'm going to Starbucks. And I mean, I, I picked up my stuff and I was going to walk out. He goes, where are you going? I said, well, I said, pastor, look. I am not going to rebel against you by using the words you asked me to use because that would be rebellion and I want to be blessed. 
So I'm not going to do that. I said, so just tell all the people in your church, you, you talked to me, you'd never met me before, you talked to me, because he hadn't met me. I mean, he met me that morning. I mean, he, 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 you never met me. I was a fruitcake. I was a flake. I will not even defend myself. Tell him I was horrible, that nobody should ever think about even going to our ministry or being involved with our ministry. Tell him all that stuff. But I'm going to Starbucks because I can't honor that because all these words you told me I can't use, hell, sin, judgment, death. I can't use these words. I said, I was actually going to use them in my opening introductory comments to say hello. And, and, um, and he looks at me, he goes, he goes, well, what? no, you can't leave. You know, because they're a church that's involved with, you know, one of these newer, younger, a huge church. I mean, like I told you, it's huge. But I mean, but they're one of these things and they can't do anything spontaneously because they're not led by the Spirit of God. It's all according to programming, the program, the videos, the, the uh, video clips. Nobody can just stand up and share the word spontaneously. And so, so because it's built on a corporate structure mentality. It's built on tradition. To them, it's tradition that you do things the way you do things. Is this making sense? Okay, the first generation encounter, and they have convictions. The second generation, Isaac, they, they're more about, you know, a, a, a lifestyle, and so it's tradition. And in fact, when you read about Isaac in Genesis, he doesn't build nearly as many altars. He doesn't dig nearly as many wells. And you know what? The altars he does build, listen, and the wells he does dig tend to be the rebuilding and the redigging of his fathers. Tradition. Got it? He's just building this thing, corporate structure, the way it's done. And there's strength to tradition. Oh, this is going to get scary in just a second. Are you ready for this? Okay, then the Jacob generation comes along. Jacob comes along. Now follow this. Jacob comes along. You get Jacob, right? So here comes Jacob. Jacob, that third generation, rebels, right? They don't build any altars. They don't dig any wells. See, the first generation had convictions. The second generation viewed it as tradition. The third generation says, that's nothing but legalism, man. They rebel because they view it as legal. Well, why don't you smoke? Why can't I drink? I mean, they, they're dragging the Bible. You know, why can't I drink? Look, I realize where I'm at. I know I'm in California. I realize a, a big uh, bunch of the profit of this state goes to alcohol and wine. I come from Colorado. You know, you know now they've, they've legalized everything. Everybody's talking weed. I mean, now we have forest fires. Entire communities get high. <laughs> you know, the restaurant business is increasing because everybody's got the munchies. That's great. But, but the bottom line is, <laughs> the bottom line is, it's like, guys, do you understand how messed up this is? And, you know, they're, they're advertising. I left, you know, to fly out here, and the big news was, hey, the state's going to make more money out of, you know, getting more people smoking weed in Colorado. Is this what they're supposed to be doing? You know, it's not supposed to be stealing your Estates are not supposed to be stealing your money and saying, play the lottery, gamble. That's how you're going to make money. So give us money by doing this. I and mean, like, they're supposed to be helping people, not hurting them. You, maybe you've never been around families that have been destroyed by gambling, but we, I have. Anybody in ministry has. You know, you see the destruction that it does. This is not good stuff. Do you understand? But why do they do that? Now follow this. Jacob comes along. They view everything as legalism. It's like, where in the Bible does it say I can't smoke marijuana? And you look at somebody and say, well, let me ask you a question. Where does God say your influence should come from? Should you be influenced by him or by something else that you ingest inside of you? Should you be influenced and led by the Spirit of God? Isn't it funny that the same people who complain and say, I don't want, you know, to have anybody tell me I can't smoke or drink or do all the rest of this stuff that I want to do are the same people who think it's weird to pray in tongues. You know what I think is weird? I think it's weird getting so drunk you wake up in the middle of the field completely naked and covered with Vaseline and you don't know how that happens. I am so... That was such a bad mental picture. I now realize I'm going to have to pray for deliverance for people. But anyway, so... But the thing is, okay, 
where does this come from? Where does it come from that people think I'm weird because I want to pray in tongues? And then Christians in the church think that. It's because we've rebelled. We're living in a third generation culture. And there are so many third generation Christians. You know, you have, you have that second generation. It's about tradition. They don't want to encounter God. It's not that they're opposed to it, but to them it's just tradition. It's like, okay, it's something we do. Then you got that other generation, the third generation. It's like, well, why can I do all this stuff? Because they want to rebel against that because they view it all as legalism. And that's where the Spirit of God has got to come in. How? Watch this. Was Abraham's name always Abraham, yes or no? What was it? And then he became after he encountered God. Was Jacob's name always Jacob? What was it afterward? When did that happen? He encountered God. Remember, he wrestled with God and God won. Now listen, what about Isaac? Isaac was Isaac. That's, that's the, the danger of tradition. Tradition never changes. And the reason why is because they have enough of God. It's not that they're opposed to God. It's they have enough of God, and they have these things going on, and they say, but I do these things. But there's a difference between saying prayers and actually having a prayer life. There's a difference between having devotions and being devoted. There's a difference when a couple's married, and, and the husband looks at the wife and is in counseling because they want to get a divorce. And the husband says, but I do this and this and this for you. And the wife looks at him and says, yeah, but I don't have your heart. Or your eyes anymore, because I see where your eyes are wandering. And see, God says the same thing to his church. Are you hearing this? See, that's the dilemma. That's why we need. What changed Jacob? Think about this. Think about this with me. Jacob was messed up, man. I mean, he was, he was, he was a manipulator. He was ungodly. He was a liar, but he was still the child of the promise. That's a lot of grace. God could have wiped them out right there, but he didn't. Don't you ever say that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New. He's not. He's filled with grace in both Testaments. Now listen to me. You need to hear this. That God of the Old Testament and his grace did not judge Jacob. He wrestled with him. God wrestles with people. That's why he corners you and puts you into positions and makes you cry uncle. He makes you cry uncle because he's God and he loves you and he cares for you. You have a Father in Heaven who loves you. And that God, Abba, Father, Abba, not the Swedish rock group, Abba, Father, <laughs> Daddy God. That God of heaven loves you. He wrestled with him and he encountered God, and it broke him from what he was so that he could have God, and that's exactly why the Spirit of God is going to be poured out in this generation. This is a Jacob generation with a bunch of Isaacs, and God's going to pour out his Spirit, and he's going to break this generation. And then this generation is going to become, instead of Jacob, Israel, instead of a manipulating supplanter. Now follow this. Isaac expected blessings, but Jacob felt entitled to them. That's like you coming to church and saying, I haven't prayed, I haven't read the word. Pastor, you get me what I need. And if I don't get what I need, I'm walking out here, I'm going to another church, they'll give me what I need. You know what? You ought to thank Jesus right now. You didn't get what you actually deserve. The fact is, we ought to thank him right now. Are you hearing me? Amen? Thank you, Jesus. I didn't get what I really deserve. Because what I really deserve is hell. Are you hearing me? 
Now follow this. This is absolutely radically important for everybody to get this in this place. See, the dilemma now exists. How does God accomplish this, and how does he work? He always does this by movings of the Holy Spirit. We had lunch uh, briefly today, uh, Pastor uh, Brian and I. And I said to him, I said, there's one thing we disciple in the people. I tell them all the time. I'm an evangelist, but I believe in discipleship totally. And, and, and you know, we always say this. We hammer this into those that we've discipled. We hammer this to them. I tell them, if there's one thing we learn from history is that nobody ever learns from history. God always moves by outpourings of his spirit. Now, why is this important to us? I'm going to get, believe me, I'm going to get into this. I'm going to still get, I mean, I'm teaching a lot of the Bible right now, but uh, an overview here. But um, we have such a dilemma because we've taken the power of the Holy Spirit. When I say Pentecost and God is pouring out his spirit, probably the majority of the people in this room here aren't thinking about being filled with the spirit of God and having a dynamic prayer life called praying in tongues. You're more thinking about, man, are we going to have like gold dust? Are we going to have some unusual phenomenon? Are people going to get slain in the spirit? We want God to move on us. Heal me and take care of my problems so I have a more entertained and enjoyable life. But God wants to work in you and through you. There is a really interesting uh, a portion of scripture in the Bible, and that's what makes the Bible so scriptural, is that, um, is that in, in, in Acts chapter 8, Samaria has a healing revival through Philip, who's an evangelist. And uh, so, you know, for those of us who are evangelists, I mean, you know, we love Philip. And Philip shows up there, and he's a busboy that's gotten on fire for Jesus, and he's preaching the gospel. So he's preaching the gospel. All of Samaria gets saved. Simon the sorcerer. That's where Simon the sorcerer, not Simon says, because that was like a distant relative. Simon the sorcerer, he's the head demonic witch doctor of the area. And he's got a demonic ministry. And he's doing all these amazing things. And he's keeping people spellbound by his demonic arts. Well, what happens is Philip comes. People are getting healed. Demons are coming out. Even Simon the sorcerer gets saved. And everybody's getting water baptized. Was the early church happy? No. The early church was upset. They sent Peter and John there. You read it. You read it in Romans, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 8. They sent Peter and John because the people had not gotten baptized in the Holy Spirit. They'd only been water baptized. Now think about that. The Bible tells you water baptism is essential for you. It's important and everybody needs to be water baptized. But the Bible literally says that Peter and John went there because the people had only been water baptized. Are you hearing that? What does that mean? They were getting it. See ya. What happens is you tend to slip into tradition. You tend to slip into just getting water baptized, and you think this external thing is good, all that matters. You know, the people had signs, wonders, and miracles. If we were having meetings like this here, every church that's here represented would be packing out this place. We'd get a bigger auditorium. Because people would be coming saying, well, see what miracle you get. See what thing you could get and all the rest. But the early church, I mean, all of Samaria's getting saved and water baptized, man. And they're not happy. What does it take to make you happy? They were concerned because they knew that if people were not personally filled with the Holy Spirit, they would never be completely transformed and changed. We want God to move on us on our external circumstances to give us an easier life. But God wants to move in you because he wants to make you look like his son. A changed life can change a world. But a person who's excited about going to revival meetings can't. You know, your neighbors don't need to see your face walking out your door and see your taillights as you're going to another church meeting. They need to see your face at their front door when they're going through their worst problems and you got an answer that goes beyond, hey, listen, we're just here to cry with you. When you lay your hands on them and you're living a life that is worth being replicated, when you're living a life 
that is holy and pure. When people are drinking all around you and you're not drinking. When people are sexing all around you and you're not sexing. When people are looking at disgusting things and you're not looking. I have a friend who's in ministry. I love what he said. He goes, when we got saved, he goes, we were auto mechanics. Our garage got saved. And you know what that means? When a, you know how a, a, an auto garage gets saved? You change the calendars. <laughs> I mean, that's what changes. <laughs> you know what the bottom line is, though? But that's what happens. You know, that has more force than you could ever imagine. Because when God changes a man or a woman and they change, when they really change, when they become servants rather than users. You know, the church has become, the church has become a user place. It's what's for me and mine. But how about like return a blessing unto God? Are you, are you hearing me? We're in a Jacob generation and God's going to pour out his spirit, but he wants to pour out his spirit in us to change us and transform us. Is this making sense? Look at 2 Kings 3. This will perfectly lead into this. I'm going to read you this, a lot, a big portion of this. So just follow along with me as, you, as I read this, starting with verse 1. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, everyone say Ahab, Ahab, became the king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother. For he put away the sacred pillar of Baal, which his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which the, uh, which, with which he made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder and used to pay the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. Then he uh, went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go with, I will go up. I am as you are. My people is your people. My horses is your horses. You notice they never say my taxes is your taxes. It's kind of funny. He said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they made a circuit of seven days journey, and there was no water for the army or for the cattle that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings to give them up into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, There is not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him. One of the king of Israel's servants said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat, the word, uh, Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Now Elisha said to the king of Israel, What do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. And the king of Israel said, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab. Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you or even see you. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came about that the minstrel played and the hand of the Lord came upon him. He said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of trenches. Thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet the valley shall be filled with water, so you shall drink, both you and your cattle and your beasts. This is but a slight thing in the sight of the Lord. He'll also give the Moabites into your hand. Then you shall strike every fortified city and every choice city and fell every good tree and stop all the springs of water and mar every good piece of land with stones. It happened in the morning about the time of the offering of the sacrifice that behold, water came by the way of Edom and the country was filled with water. Everyone shout amen. amen. Now I want you to hear this. Okay. And actually this wonderfully brings together everything I've just said in a cool way. What you see is the son of Ahab and you see him here, you know, this, uh, this king of Israel, Jehoram. Jehoram comes and he's the son of Ahab. His mother was Jehoshaphat. How bad of a family can you have? 
You know, here's my, you know, can you imagine going to school for Parents' Day? Yeah, here's my dad, Ahab, and he's like a manipulating whiner, you know, uh, kind of henpeck kind of guy who's really evil. He does all these idols. And here's my mother. Well, her name is Jezebel, so, you know, you know how good that goes. I mean, can you imagine introducing your parents? Even if you don't know what Jezebel did, you know what Jezebel is not good, right? So Jezebel, so his parents are Ahab and Jezebel. Now, I want to say this. Just because your family is bad does not mean you have to turn out bad. My family was really messed up till Jesus changed them. I turned out okay. Because God changed me. Because you can be born again out of all that junk. Somebody shout amen. amen. God can change everything about your future. Your past does not determine your present or your future. Somebody shout amen. amen. See, you know that when you're, you know, that's, that's Holy Spirit talk. That's first generation talk. You know, Second and third generation says, your family determines that you're going to be like this. This is what your background is. This is the way you're always going to be. But man, when you know what God can do in encounter, I am not anything like I was previously before I got saved. You know, the police got happy. <laughs> you, know, you know you're bad when the police are praying for you and they don't even know God. Hello. <laughs> you know, the bottom line is I was messed up and bad, but God changed me. I'm not anything like the angry individual I was. You know, I was so messed up and angry. I was so, but God took the sword out of my heart because God changes you. That's, I'd be nuts not to tell everybody that I preach to. God can take you. I don't care what you've been into. God will change, change you in a 10-second encounter with the Spirit of God at an altar, and you will be forever free. I can say that to people. I'd be an idiot if I didn't. That first generation preaching was deliverance salvation. You got delivered out of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son, like the Bible says. You know, we used to tell people you're a new creation. Now we just say you're forgiven. Second and third generation says you're forgiven, but you're still a mess. First generation says you are a new creation. You have been changed. You are transformed. You are delivered. You're nothing like you were. When I, first got, when, somebody, when I first got led to Christ, when I first got saved, the guys discipling me, God bless them, they looked at me and said, if you ever go back and you have the same desires and all the other stuff you ever did, you're not saved. They looked at me and said, you better just keep going to the altar until you're changed. And when you're changed, then you know you're saved. You have to know you've changed. We don't say that to people anymore because we want them in church. We don't tell them that. You know, we should tell them what it says in the Bible about marriage and about the other stuff. Oh, I'm not going there. If that's what the Bible says about this, what do you mean? Well, I mean what the Bible says. God changes you. Look, Jehoram was messed up. And isn't it funny the way it says, he wasn't as bad as his parents. We always say that about ourselves, don't we? We always say, you know, I'm not as bad as that guy. You know, I mean, listen, I've done prison ministry. I've gone and done uh, prisons and, and preached. And you know, it's so weird. If you walk up to anybody on the streets here in Hayward, just a regular citizen, and walk up to them and say, you know, we've all sinned. We're horrible sinners. Or we, you know, we deserve hell. If you walked up to one of them and said that, they look at you and go, I'm not that bad. I never killed anybody. I was in a jail cell with a guy who whacked two people. Okay, his name was Gary. I, I walked in his cell, I mean, this prison that I was at in uh, Utah. And I was in there, and I'm doing prison ministry. I'm sitting down with Gary. He's killed two people. And I'm telling him, Gary, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I shared just a basic Bible text, Romans, with him. He looks at me, he goes, Dean, I'm not that bad. I've never committed adultery. <laughs> you know how weird that is? I mean, I talked to a guy in the street. I'm not bad because I haven't killed anybody. And this guy who's killed people says he's not bad because he's never taken anybody else's spouse. I mean, that's just weird, uh, right? I mean, do you see, when I feel fat, I don't compare myself 
to Twiggy, I compare myself to somebody who's roughly the size of a half-ton pickup truck. Right? But the comparison God makes and you have to make for yourself is Jesus. Where you go to those rides, carnivals, Disneyland, right? You go, they have that cut out for the kids, and it's it, with a tape measure up the middle. It says, if you're not this size, you ain't getting on this ride. Well, in heaven, there's a cutout, and it's Jesus. And it says, if you're not that size, you can't get on that ride. You're like, but I can't do it. That's why you need Jesus. That's why you have to have him. Am I getting through to somebody? So here he is, right? Here's Jehoram, and he's messed up. Not as bad as his parents. I'm better, <laughs> right? I got rid of this, but I'm still doing that, so I'm okay. You know, I led a guy to Christ who was a hell's angel. I led this guy to Christ, and he, 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 he said to me, he said, <laughs> he said to me, he goes, listen, because his, 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 his woman, as he said it, was a stripper. And so he says, um, he goes, I'm going to make it right. I'm going to marry her. <laughs> and I said, well, that's great, but you, that, that's not the only thing that needs to happen. It's a complete transformation, bro. You have to leave what you're involved with. He looked at me and goes, I don't know if I can do that. They'll kill me. I said, Jesus already killed you off. They can't kill what's already dead. He had struggled, but he did leave it. He was the president of that chapter, and he left it completely. Now listen to me. You have to make a choice. He's like, okay, I'll make it right because I'll still do all the drugging, all the other stuff, but I'll marry the person I'm living with. Do you understand? We try to, you know, we, we get rid of one thing and think, now I'm all better. No, your whole life needs to be changed. Okay, so Jehoram, right? He's messed up. Now, his dad, Ahab, who's a powerful military leader, dies. This guy from Moab, who's a king, who's been uh, subjected to him, rebels against him. Because he's going to test and see, is the son as strong as the dad in his leadership? Let's see if he's as tough of a king. So he rebels against him. So now, in order to prove that he's a big man, strong man, Jehoram's going to go after him. So he goes. But then he calls Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoram's messed up. Backslidden, second to third. He's basically radically a third-generation guy. He's Jacob, he's a manipulator, he's an idolater. I mean, Jehoram's messed up, okay? So he's a third-generation guy, and he calls to Jehoshaphat. Everyone say Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat was a good king. He loved God. He's more like a second-generation guy. He's not a first, but he's a second. And you say, why do I say that? Because he was such a good guy. He's the one, if you recall, if you read your Bible, he's the one who sent all the praise and worship team out to go face the enemy. And when they started praising the Lord, the Lord gave them victory. Does anybody remember that story in the Bible? Right? That's in the Bible. It's in your Bible. It's really cool. I can't wait to talk to the people who are part of the worship team. I can't wait. Because can you imagine? I want to ask them. You know, you're leading worship. Can you imagine? Everybody prayed. They decided to send the worship team out to face the enemy. You're going to march ahead of us. Everybody's like, yeah, God's leading us. Yeah, and worship team, you go first. Yeah. What? Dude, they got, they got swords. This is a trumpet, man. I mean, I, I want to ask, you know what I mean? I mean there, there are certain stories I want to talk to the people, you know, and I'm hoping we get a chance to talk, talk and fellowship about that stuff because I have really questions. How did you feel? Did you strum? Did you want to say, I'm third chair, you can be first today? <laughs> you know, I mean, how did they do that, right? And so, I mean, I, I wonder, I have questions. But, but the thing is, they go out, I mean, so he's a good king, he's trusted the Lord. But you know what his problem was? Because he's second generation. His problem is, and God rebukes him on it, he constantly associated with people that were compromised. See, you know, that's a good lesson for everybody in this room. You cannot, see, there are people in this room, your fellowship is with people. Now, everybody listen exactly, you know, look at my lips. Listen to what I'm going to say. Your greatest source of compromise in your Christian walk is not going to come from unbelievers. It will come from compromised believers. The Spirit of God will leave you. 
if you live in compromise. Unbelievers, you could see, you know, black and white, you could see the difference. You could see it. You look at it and say, you're not saved, I'm saved. You could see that. But it's compromised believers. Man, I love Jesus and I still do all this stuff. I mean, Jesus loved me. He made this stuff. I mean, it's natural. Oh, man. I love him. You can cry all you want, but your emotions do not. Jesus said you could tell a tree by its fruit. If it's, if it's fruit's bad, bad tree. You ought to read this, Matthew 8. Bad tree if the fruit's bad. Good tree if the fruit's good. It doesn't mean that every now and then a bad apple can't come out of a tree. But it's, if the constant byproduct is continually bad apples, that's a bad tree. Are you hearing me? Jehoshaphat wanted to keep associating with the bad trees. And God later rebukes him on it. And he makes a horrible decision to get into fellowship with this guy and go into battle with somebody who's completely compromised. In fact, they almost died. If you were listening to the stories, I read it. They almost died. That's what happens to a lot of Christian people in their spiritual walk. They almost died. That's what happens to a lot of churches. We want to associate with the world. We want to be, you know, we're part of these compromised believers. You know what, guys? You've got to watch it. That's a good word. Amen? Now follow this, okay? So what happens is they, they go marching, and here's their strategy. They take along. So here's a third-generation guy in total rebellion with a second-generation guy who's associated with somebody he shouldn't be associating with, and then they also take the king of Edom, who's a complete unbeliever. So you got a second and third-generation guy, a, a good guy who's made a bad decision, a really bad, evil guy who's completely in compromise, and a guy who's an unbeliever, and they're going to march to battle. It almost sounds like a joke, <laughs> right? So you got a guy who's a, you know, forget it. So... So they're marching out to battle, and here's their battle strategy. How are we going to go attack them? We're going to march through the desert, and we'll surprise them. So they march for seven days through the desert, and then they complain because they're dying. They say, there's no water. Who comes up with a strategy? Whose strategy was it? Whose strategy? It was their strategy, but which one of theirs? It was Jehoram's strategy, the third generation guy. It was the guy who's into total rebellion against God. He's rebelling against God. He's an idolater. So he's like, I got a brilliant idea. We're going to really surprise him. Now they're, now they're dying of thirst. So what do they do? They blame God. We're dying. We're in the desert. There's no water. Our cattles are dying. Our dog's dying. If the cat dies, who cares? But the dog's dying. I mean, you know, man, we're messed up. God, it's your fault. He wants us all to die and give us in the hands of the enemy. That's exactly what happens in the church today. We want the Spirit of God to be poured out while at the same time we want to blame God for our own bad decisions and sins. Is He going to pour out His Spirit on you when you're constantly looking at Him as your scapegoat? Where was God? Where were you? You, you don't know, but I was a child when that happened to me. I'm sorry. But you know that thing that you've complained about and allowed to define you all these years? The thing that you're always using so you could justify your sins and tell people, get off my back. This happened to me when I was a kid. You can't accuse me. I can do any sin that I want because I had a free pass to get to heaven sinning as much as I want because I had something bad happen to me when I was a kid. Well, good luck with that when you stand before God. Because you know what God's going to say to you? He's going to say, yeah, you were young, and that was horrible. But if you had ever come to the altar and given that up, I would have changed you. And in five seconds at the altar, I could have taken the pain that you're using as an excuse to accuse me so you could do whatever you want. I could have changed that pain and made it an actual platform of ministry for deliverance to other people could have used you. I mean, I could have done that. But no, you wanted to define you because you thought you could manipulate me. 
Is anybody hearing me? Oh, this is good preaching. Uh huh. Listen to me, okay? You cannot ask God the Holy Spirit to come on you when you are accusing God of all of your sins and bad decisions. That's why the Bible tells you when you get to the book of Acts, chapter 2, and they all want to know what everybody's doing when they're praying in tongues. What is the meaning of this? What are you guys doing? What does Peter say in his great message? He says, repent, and times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will pour out the same thing on you. Repentance is where your refreshing comes from. God is drawn by his spirit. His spirit is attracted to people that repent. You want to be more happy in your life? Find something to repent about. You'll be refreshed. It'll refresh you. When you're holding on to things and you don't want to give it up, you're the most miserable person of all because God the Holy Spirit is trying to convict you and he's saying, I'm going to disappear here pretty soon if you don't give this up. David knew it. He sang it in a song. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. But hear this, okay? This is radical and important. Oh, but you're going to get a radical revy of that, of what I just shared with you tomorrow. I mean, in the morning session. It'll be rad to you. But follow this, okay? Spirit of God wants to come. So they start blaming God. And then Jehoshaphat says, maybe we should pray. Don't you think they should have done that before they took off? Why did he do that? I've explained a lot to you. That's right. What'd you say? Right, tradition. Because that tradition generation, they're into tradition. To them, it's all about lifestyle. They make plans. It's that whole corporate structure thing, right? Okay, let's go attack. Let's go through the desert. Let's do all the rest. They don't think about the consequences. They're like, here's a battle strategy. They're not being led by the Spirit of God. They're doing it according to this. Is this making sense to anybody in this room? So, so they're, they're stuck. Now he wants to pray. You know, they make all their, you know, the tradition church, the, the, the second and third generation church does all the planning, does all the stuff, and then they start to have consequences, and then they pray. Basically, I call it today bulimic Christianity in America. We binge and purge on God. Things go bad, we're praying. We get into God. Everything's God. Everything's Jesus. Then when things start going good, we dump him and purge him out of our life. Listen up, okay? That happens. So they now decide they're going to pray. And, and he says, is there anybody, because you know he doesn't trust himself, which he shouldn't have at the beginning. He goes, is there somebody we can inquire of and pray and seek the Lord through? Well, there's this Elisha the prophet. He's a man of God. Okay, good. Let's show up. So they show up at his house. Elisha walks out the front door. Now, everybody pay close attention. He looks at Jehoram and says, why don't you go to your idols? Now, that's nasty, isn't it? Pastor, sister pastor, pastor, don't. Other pastor here I met. Don't, pastor, don't. That's not nice. You're a man of God. You shouldn't say that to me. I mean, I'm not going to come to your church anymore. I'm not going to tithe anymore. Don't you tell me I got to get my life right. Who do you think you are? You're a man. I know you got problems. You got problems. Well, you got problems. You think you're going to tell me this. You solve my problem and get me out of my problems, but you don't tell me to change. See, do you understand why we're not people of the Spirit of God? Because the Spirit of God's job is to bring conviction concerning sin, righteousness, and his judgment. You'll read that in the Gospel of John. His job 
is to convict you and bring things to light that you want to hide from everybody. So if you really want more of him, he wants to expose what you want to hide. But he doesn't want to expose it to make fun of you. He wants to expose it to get it out of you. And then give you refreshing on top of that. Is this good? But see, if you're second and third generation, it's all about view and about rebellion. So I like to live in my sin and have you tell me it's okay. Second uh, generation, it's all like, well, that would be unkind because if we said that, we might get a lawsuit if we expose it. Yet the Bible says, rebuke people. And if they don't listen, take somebody else. If they don't listen, tell it to everybody. But there are lawsuits. I don't care. I'll have a revival in prison. Believe me, they'll throw me out before they want me in there. <laughs> I've met some people you guys would love, totally love. But anyway, hear this. Um, I want you to hear this, okay? So they stand before him, and he looks at him and says, why don't you go to your idols? No, but God wants to do this to us. My idols are good, but God is trying to do this to me. That's in essence what he's saying. The world is better to me. The church hurt me. Oh, the world never hurt you? Never? They've been so good to you? Oh. <laughs> you know that's not true. That's a lie. Don't tell me that story because we're going to have a long conversation and you ain't going to win. I'm just saying. But hear this, okay? So, no, the world, but it's God who wants to do this. The world's been so good to me. My honest are so good, but God wants to do this to me. And listen to what he says. Elisha says, you should all remember this. He says this, he goes, were it not for the fact that this guy, Jehoshaphat, is here, who's a godly man and shouldn't be here with you, were it not for the fact that he were here, I wouldn't even pay attention to you or recognize your existence. What does that mean? You have to understand the role these churches play in this community. You know what? If it were not for the presence of God's righteous people in this area, God could not even look on this area because of their sin. He has brought you to this place to bring about revival. You are here to cry out to God. You are here, and that's why this area has hope. You know what? You ought to thank God for all those people whose lives you made miserable before you got saved. Your mother, your father, your grandmother, your grandfather, that neighbor of yours, your brother, your aunt, your uncle, whoever was kept preaching to you, kept praying for you, and all the rest. You know what? Because God would have never even taken notice were it not for their prayers and their intercession. Were it not for the presence of this good man who's, who's not thinking right by being with you, I wouldn't even look at you right now. But now bring me a minstrel. Now this is important. He was angry. Yes? I mean, you don't say something like that unless you're mad, right? Talk to me. Right? He's mad. So what does he call for? A minstrel. Why? You know, people make a little bit, I think, too much, and they miss an important point. They're like, well, the anointing comes when there's music. Well, I've been in worship services. There was no anointing. They were singing. Ain't no anointing. But that's not what this is talking about. He did something that was really good. He was hot. I'm sure he wanted to prophesy to them and say, you're all going to die, you beady-eyed little sinners. But that's not what he prophesied, is it? Because he called for the minstrel. Because when you worship God, it calms you down. Sometimes before you open your mouth and you're really mad and you're really upset, step back, turn on some worship music and get your praise on. Uh-huh. And you take that anger and you turn it into, uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, there are times, I mean, I'm ready to get all prophetic. I start worshiping God and I come out a mercy shower. Uh-huh. <laughs> Instead of God judgeth thee, <laughs> comes out, God wants to bless you. That's, you know what, guys? Worship puts it in perspective. Amen? This is good advice. This is great advice. So he lets the Spirit of God come on him. 
And the prophecy comes out a lot different than I think he was saying. And this is where I'll conclude tonight. And this is what we're going to do to begin our time together. Um, he concludes, and he gives a really cool prophetic utterance. He says to them, he says, um, make this valley full of trenches. And that's exactly what needs to happen in this room. Make it full of trenches. He says, make this valley full of trenches. And he says this, okay? He says this, he goes, their water is going to come. And what's amazing is, if you look at this story, the water came from which direction? Well, it came from the land of Edom. Edom is desert land. He said, out of the desert from which you can't get anything is where it's going to come. There's not going to be rain. There's not going to be any storm. You're not going to hear anything. It's just showing up. This is a real cool analogy of the Holy Spirit. Your deliverance will come through the Holy Spirit flowing. And what's amazing is God says, you're looking for water to drink so you don't die. God says, I'm going to give you water. That's easy for me. You think that's hard? God says, that's easy. In fact, you know what I'm going to do? That water is going to ultimately become the source of your great victory. Because not only am I going to give you water so you don't die, but I'm going to defeat all your enemies on top of that. What God's saying is, if I send my water, which is my Holy Spirit, inside of you, I'm not only going to satisfy the deepest thing you have inside of you, I'm going to defeat all your enemies on top of that. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is that great victory. Because God, what he does through his baptism in the Holy Spirit, he fills us up. And what God fills, the devil cannot occupy. He squeezes out all that junk. That's why he wants people filled to overflowing. Is anybody hearing me? He wants to fill you and squeeze out all that nonsense, man. He wants to get it out of you, man. He wants to fill you to overflowing. And he says, not only am I going to satisfy the longing thirst you have, but on top of that, I will defeat all those internal enemies inside of you. Amen. Man, I'll tell you what. I got a Rebbe for you out of Romans 8 that blow you away. Blow you away. We'll talk about that tomorrow. But I want, I want you to hear this, okay? That isn't going to happen until you make the valley full of trenches. Um, see this? Here's my little water bottle, which represented the corporate structure. Now it's just a water bottle. Here's the water level. Can you see it? Oh, you can't see it from over there. Here's the water level. Here's the problem. You know, too many of us are coming to church and we're saying, Jesus, please fill me up. But the problem is, you're like, just fill me up. I just need that much. Problem is, he can't fill you up because you're too full of yourself. He says, make this valley full of trenches. That's why he's always asking you to empty yourself. Without surrender, there is no true intimacy. When a man and wife get married, they surrender things. It's when they hold on to things and don't surrender that they lose intimacy and destroy a marriage. When we don't surrender, we destroy our intimacy with Jesus. And when we do that, we're just filling ourselves with ourselves. And we're saying, God, fill us. But when his water is poured out, so little actually fills us, the rest of it just runs off and goes to other places. God says, I want you to dig and make the valley full of trenches. Empty yourself of yourself. Empty yourself. That's why we repent. 
Too many of us in this room are too much like Isaac and Jacob. How many of you would agree with me and say with me, say, say to me, you know, in the presence of God, don't lie to God, this is his house. How many of you would say to me, you know, Dean, honestly, um, I think there's too much of me and not enough of Jesus inside of me. Well, come on, get up, would you? Come on, get up. Let's make this house of God full of trenches. Come on up here, would you? Come on, everybody, come on up here. Come on up here. Come on up. Come on. Come on. I'm a crusade evangelist. That's what I am by calling. Um, but, uh, but we disciple people. I was raised really well in the things of God. I mean, I got really discipled by a great group of people who hammered us all the time. You must always be leading people to Jesus. And Dean, you must always be discipling somebody and somebody should always be discipling you. That's why I have people speaking in my life all the time. I've got, I've got men of God and uh, one great woman of God, my wife, speaking into my life continually. And, uh, you know, because when you're Greek and you're this hyper, I mean, man, I mean, you know, to me, everything's like, let's go for it. And I have people who need to speak no's into my life. When you have too many yes people, um, you know what you come to appreciate? You come to appreciate people who are not in, look, if you hang out with me after a period of time, and Brian has known me for a while, I'm not impressed with me <laughs> at all. Um, and I wasn't joking. We work hard on not, the people not knowing all the things we do. It's kind of funny sometimes when um, people kind of find out some of the things. And I, I mean, I had somebody talk to me the other day and go, you know, I just found out that you did this and you know this and this and this. And he goes, what? You never advertised that. I'm like, why, why would I want to? I mean, I don't have a book table out there. Surprise. I'm not selling you on anything. Um, surprise. I'm not here to market anything. I'm here to minister to you. God's been good to us. You know, you know God's taken care of all the ministry things we've done, even through the economic downturn. We've never had a problem. We have had every need met amply in regards to all the ministry things we've done, all the churches. We've never actually skipped a beat. We don't actually don't even think of that stuff. You know what, guys? Because this is not about second generation and third generation building something. This is not about corporate structure mentality. It's about a spiritual body. You see God and you pray. And you don't worry about anything. Well, I'm not concerned about things. Listen, I hang out with crazy people. I mean, look, one of the countries that we do ministry in, it's illegal to preach the gospel. We preach there anyway. We preach, we plant a church there. You cannot even be a minister ordained in their ministries unless you've been imprisoned at least three times. That's part of your ordination requirement. Because they feel like, look, it's illegal to preach the gospel, and if you're actually doing the job, you should have been at least arrested three times by now. If nobody's arrested you, then you must not be, you know, doing what you should be doing. I mean, you, you know, I hang out with people like this. You know what I mean? I mean, to them, it's not like a, a horrible thing. To them, it's, it's not like a prideful badge of honor, but to them, it's like, hey, if you're doing the work of God, you're going to suffer something. If you haven't suffered something, then what's wrong with you? Look, I'm not into, like, oh, whip me, beat me, make me feel cheap. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, that was so weird, I can't even believe I said it that way. Um, I think I should have worded the word masochistic. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm not a masochist. But what I'm trying to say is, I'm not, it, it, this is not about trying to get a badge of honor by saying, look what I've suffered. This has not, nothing to do with that. It's got to do with a mindset that is a spiritual mindset. There are different countries represented in this room, and some of which it's difficult to preach the gospel in. And I want to say something to you. You know, there is something that God did. You know, maybe you came and you're in the States because you wanted to escape some of those stuff. You know, there's something that you should never lose an edge of is an understanding of the cost that it means to follow Christ. 
We have to empty ourselves. That means you have to agree with Jesus against yourself. You have to agree with him to surrender things that you want to hang on to. If God cannot even suggest to you that maybe you need to get rid of certain relationships or habits or hobbies or your use of TV, if he can't even suggest some of these things to you where you seriously consider it as an option that God's speaking that to you, you're never going to be filled with what God really wants to fill you with, which is himself. You, how, how can I have a relationship with my wife? I always the TV on when she wants to talk to me from her heart. Right? You can't do that. How is God going to talk to you when your head's always busy with all these things you're thinking about? How many of you have had a prayer time this week and your prayer time consisted with a lot of worrying about things that were going on and you can't even remember the chapter you were in in the Bible you were reading? And then you uttered some words, and basically, if you really think about it, your prayer time actually was a honey-do list for God to take care of things for you. Is that really what God asked you to? Is that what you do with your spouse? You want to have a long relationship with somebody who really loves you by just, like, keep on telling them what they could do for you? Whatever happened to waiting in the presence of God? Don't you see, the Holy Spirit's mission is to glorify Jesus in you and through you. His mission is to draw you close to him. You have to be empty for that. Make this valley full of trenches so I can fill it. God wants to fill you, but we have to empty ourselves. So this is what I'm going to do at this altar. We're going to ask God to forgive us. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and then I'm going to ask you to lift up your voices and pray. And after that, I'm going to ask you to just wait in God's presence. I'm going to, and I want you to, what's going to happen is in that process. I've asked the Lord, if he would speak to you about the things that need to be surrendered that are chewing up your time. They're chewing up the time that you're spending with him, that should be spent with him. They're chewing up your energy, your mind, your concentration. We were having a great conversation uh, at lunch, and we got to talking about something. My wife said it up here. You'd love her. She's awesome. She's incredible. She actually glows at night. I have to wear sunglasses. It's kind of weird. But um, uh, Carol once was, we were in a thing, and we were uh, both preaching at these meetings, and she was preaching that night. And Carol said something, which got her in a little bit of trouble with people, but you have to listen to what she said. She said this. She says, our family is not a focus on the family family. We're a family focus on God family. There's a difference. And we were talking about this afternoon. Pastor Brian and I were talking about it. Some people have used their families to get themselves out of pursuing God. So I'm not going to force my kids to go to church. I don't want them to turn off on God. You force them to go to school. We discipline our kids because they don't get grades, but yet they don't press into God at the church and you don't do anything about it. I disciplined my guys if they weren't pursuing God. I said, I could care less if you get C's or D's. But you're going to get an A-plus with Jesus. Amen. Now, my guys are doing, they did, one graduated. He's doing, he did great at school, phenomenal. And he's known in Denver, <laughs> which is amazing to me. Pursued by political parties so they can do stuff. And he's got a, a great job and he's got great influence at various things. I mean, uh, it's amazing. And my other son is nuts. He's actually in a play because I asked him to kind of be in a play and he's doing all this stuff. And he has a strong stance for Jesus. They both pray in tongues a lot. If you pray in tongues anywhere in their presence, you'll hear them praying in tongues. They'll just immediately go into tongues. They're 23 and 19. They'll start praying in tongues because it's an after effect of a raising that they got. Because I wanted them to know, I don't care what it is that your profession is and how much money you make in life because that's not what makes you a success. But if you fail in the things of God, that's what makes you a failure. But that's not what we do today. At youth group, make sure the youth group's over at a certain time because we got to get them home so they get good, good grades at school. 
Good grades for what? To get to a college and have a you know, scholarship. To do what? So they get good grades there. For what? To get a great degree. For what? To get a great job, make lots of money, and die and go to hell. Oh, okay. So you got kids that are who have the, have the spiritual IQ of, a, of, a, of that screen or doorknob. But bless God, they're going to make lots of money. Well, you don't go to prayer meeting because you're running them off to a soccer practice or a baseball practice or do whatever. God bless you. Good luck with that. Their value system is got to be good at something so I can make lots of money. And then you wonder why they're bratty? Empty yourself of that. I don't know what to say. I can't cover all the things that are in my spirit right now. I feel like exploding. I don't know what to tell you except that you have to listen to what God says and say, God, I'm willing to get rid of these things. Lord God, I want to empty myself so you could fill me out and squeeze out all of me so I no longer live, but you live in me. Almighty God, I can't say that prayer for you. This is the hardest thing in the world to do. I mean, I can lead you in a prayer that I'm going to lead you in that's going to be general, but the specifics you have to fill in in the blank. Only God can do that inside of you. He's looking to take residence in his church, which means you, not the building, you. But he can't fill what's full. Can you pour yourself out at the altar and ask him what is in you that needs to be removed and say, yes, Lord, give me the strength and I'll remove it. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads, close your eyes, please. With your heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, in the name of Jesus, hear our prayer tonight, I pray, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Hear the prayer of our heart. Would you say this with me with your hands on your heart? Just put both of your hands on your heart, please. Say this with me. Jesus, I stand here at your altar where I should be. And I ask you to forgive me. I have sinned. That's not a big surprise. Because I am weak. But you are strong. And I confess. I'm too full of me. Forgive me, Lord. Deliver me from second and third generation Christianity and help me to have a first generation encounter. Speak to me, O oh God, and show me what fills me that squeezes you out. I want you to fill the emptiness in me. But I want to empty myself of everything you don't want in my life from this moment forward. Now, would you begin to lift up your voice to God right now? If you pray in tongues, lift your voice in tongues.